from E-Town Hall in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, it's E-Town, continuing our 30th anniversary celebration, this week bringing you part two of the highlights from our 2006 season, featuring Dar Williams, Earl Scruggs, Josh Ritter, James Hunter, and more, plus our award winner, author Dave Eggers. I'm Helen Forster, and here's our host, Nick Forster. Thank you, Helen. Hello, everybody. Welcome to E-Town. It seems like the world is getting a little weirder every day. There are lots of things to worry about, but we're not going to try to solve any problems this week. No news analysis, no updates from Ukraine or freedom trucker thing or COVID world, nothing like that. We're going to do what we've been doing all along for decades. We're going to share some good live music and some positive stories of people making a difference where they live. That's it. As you know, we've been taking a break from recording live shows, and that's given us a chance to dive into our considerable archives and rediscover some gems that have been hiding there in plain sight. That's what we're going to do this week. Listen to some moments from the E-Town stage that happened 15 or 16 years ago, songs and stories that nobody's heard in a long time. So it feels, certainly to us, fresh, kind of timeless, and just good. Feels good. Our first set of music includes my conversation and a song from an American musical legend, the creator of an entirely new way of approaching the five-string banjo, the late Earl Scruggs. Plus music from the Wood Brothers and starting things off, my fellow Hudson Valley person, Dar Williams, live on stage at E-Town from back in 2006. Last time I was here uh, in E-Town, I spoke with Nick, and we did uh, grow up in the Hudson Valley, and um, I'm living very close to where he lived, and he told me a great story about his mom staving off an angry horde of people who were after Pete Seeger, who had come to show them how groovy and great the river was, and uh, they just saw him as a commie. And Nick told me this story, and I have this picture of his mom being this great peacemaker on the Hudson River so that Pete could deliver his message that, you know, brought me back to the Hudson Valley to live. So big thanks to Nick and his mom.
Thank you, Dar Williams. Up next, we're going to go straight to Chautauqua Auditorium in 2006, where we recorded a show with the late Earl Scruggs, the legendary banjo player who was born in North Carolina in 1924. He went on to achieve worldwide fame, first as a member of Bill Monroe's original band, and then as a founding member of Flatten Scruggs. Many of us heard him for the first time in the theme song to the TV show The Beverly Hillbillies, or perhaps in the theme song to the movie Bonnie and Clyde, which was his classic Foggy Mountain Breakdown. Earl was an absolute innovator on the five-string banjo, a legend in American music, and it was an honor to have him on stage at E-Town. Here's my conversation with Earl from back in 2006. Thank you. Well, I mentioned earlier that you were born in North Carolina in uh-huh. 1924 yeah. in a musical family. For the folks listening on the radio, I wonder if you could help us just get a sense of, of what growing up in your house was like. Were there just a bunch of instruments around and your brothers and sisters played? And, or how did it, uh, what was it like? Everybody in the family played a little bit. Nobody took it seriously. They could uh, <clears throat> play once a month or something and be happy with that. But I, I, every time I'd pick, and lay it down and want to pick again. So I kept picking, and here yeah. I am today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was there a tune that you remember that was sort of like the first one that just got in your head and wouldn't let go? Was there a, a song that you heard that just kind of lit you up in a special way? Well, I was raised up with old <clears throat> standard tunes like Cripple Creek and John Henry. I used to play, they call it, two-finger style, which were a little misleading. It was thumb and index finger. Mm-hmm. They call it two-finger picking. I was sitting in what we call the living room of the house one day just picking by myself, and I was playing this old tune that's still played today called Reuben, <clears throat> and suddenly realized I had something going, and it was that middle finger going, which, which fit in pretty good. So <laughs> I like that. I, that little accident where you invited your other extra finger to the party kind of changed things. It, it just came in on its own. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't do anything to help it. It just started doing it. <laughs> it's kind of like saying, yeah, you know, Jimi Hendrix sort of changed the way people think about electric guitar. You know, the thing you did really just changed the whole way that people thought about the banjo. Mm-hmm. And I know that uh, being with Bill Monroe's Bluegrass Boys must have been a big responsibility and a big opportunity, too, when that chance finally came. And I know the first time you played the Opry, as I understand it, they ate it up. Yeah, there used to be a great announcer there that really started the Grand Ole Opry. His name was George D. Hay, and he he liked my picking, too, and that was unusual because he was so authentic and liked old-time music. But he'd always put me on, here's Earl Scruggs with his fancy five-string banjo. It was just a happy time. Chubby Wise was in there on the fiddle, Cedric Rainwater playing bass, and Lester Flatt on, on guitar, and me yeah. and Bill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in those days, radio was pretty much the whole ball game. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. The Grand Ole Opera was the biggest thing in the country. It was like Hollywood at that time. Yeah. yeah it was a big thing. And then uh, once you left Bill's band and you founded the Foggy Mountain Boys with Lester Flatt, mm-hmm. you guys had to do some moving around. There was so much travel, uh, driving around to play all these different shows, even when TV came around, I don't think it made your life easier. Curly Seckler said that you drive 2,500 miles a week 
playing mm. six TV shows and making personal appearances mm. all the time. Mm. Yeah, we had a live radio show at 545, five days a week. You have to get up about 2 o'clock and try to get awake enough to try to get a 545 radio program on, do 15 minutes, and by that time you'd be awake by the time it's over. <laughs> go back to the house and try to go to sleep. Couldn't go to sleep and have to leave at 11 or 12 o'clock, go back out on the road and play another show date. When, um, when Elvis came around and rock and roll started happening, a lot of country and bluegrass artists had a tough time, but not you guys. Well, I'll tell you what it was. Television was coming in, and that was the thing. And our sponsor was Martha White, who was selling cornmeal and flour and table products. Of course, they put us on television as well as radio. We'd tape our morning radio programs and go do these five different towns a week. Monday was Augusta, Georgia, Tuesday, Atlanta, Wednesday was Florence, South Carolina, Thursday was Huntington, West Virginia, and Friday was Jackson, Tennessee. Saturday was WSM Television and the Grand Ole Opry. And those were all TV shows? Live television. Live television. Yeah. yeah. So that's a lot of travel. Mm -hmm. So the television kept you guys kind of elevated from a lot of the other people, gave you more exposure? Give us good exposure, yeah. sure did. And we had her turn the radio on. They got us in the morning, turned TV at us in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing that was really unusual about you was in 1955, your late wife, Louise, became your booking agent and mm -hmm. helped manage the group. Mm -hmm. And I just should mention that your wife of almost 60 years died earlier this year. And yeah. so our condolences. Well, Thank was, you. Yeah, she, I really miss her. She was a big part of your world in every way. She was a great lover, a great wife and mother of three children. Yeah. Yeah. We and had it great. She also, as I understand it, was the one who helped you get up to Newport Folk Festival the first time and encouraged mm. you to try to experiment with that audience. Yeah, and uh, the, the big thing that happened, they wanted us to come to Hollywood, Los Angeles, and play a, what they call a coffee house, a little room in California. So we went out there and played that for two weeks or something like that. And in the audience, while we was doing those shows, was a guy by the name of Paul Henning. And at the time, he had written a show called The Beverly Hillbillies. And he told us later that he made up his mind then, if the network bought his show, he's going to look us up to do the theme song. And they called Louise and said, want to do The Beverly Hillbillies. Well, she turned it down. I'm afraid of that. So I don't know what people in California would think of a hillbilly. So, but they they uh, had the <clears throat> the first show already in the can, already filmed, no music on it. So they flew that pilot show to Nashville, rented a showing room, and showed us the first Beverly Hillbilly show. So they the rich people, but they'll never spend a nickel. No flashy clothes or anything, never expose anything. So they convinced us that they were real country people with uh, great uh, minds. <laughs> Down to earth, you know. So it Especially was, it Jethro. Was, <laughs> well, you've got to throw in a little bit of comedy with any show, right. you know. 
So they put Jethro on there and make it funny and put me on there to cool it down, I reckon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's been an incredible ride. And I know that um, you founded the Earl Scruggs Review, drums, electric guitars. You had other musical visions and musical ideas that you wanted Mm -hmm. to promote. You reached out to college kids. Mm -hmm. Your work on the Circle B and Broken album with the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and a lot of the things you've done, you've reached out beyond the traditional bluegrass audience and tried to just make the conversation about music. Mm -hmm. Again, I think of the uh, choices you've made and the fact that you've been able to stay current and stay creative all these years still out there playing. You've got, as you said, one of the hottest bands you've ever had in your life. Yeah. Out here oh, playing. Oh, God, I can't die now. I'm going to pick a while if I can. <laughs> well, with that, we should probably get back to music. <laughs> Welcome back, if you would, along with this really great band from Nashville, one and only Mr. Earl Scruggs. Thank you. Thank you very much. Please welcome to E-Town for their first visit, the Wood Brothers. Thank you. It's a song called Atlas.
yeah Well, I just woke up from a dream so far away And it's no accident I landed here Eyes wide open and seeing clear I had come a long, long way told me I shouldn't try to hold his word up. He said, boy, you got some muscles that you had never used. All you got to do is go ahead and wake up. Don't you try to hold my world up. Don't you try to hold my world. Don't you try to hold my world up. Don't you try to hold my world up. Suitcase was my burden for so long. She said, Boy, you got some heart and soul, but that's not what your love is for. Lay your burden down and we'll both be stronger. Don't you try to hold my world up. Don't you try to hold my world. Don't you try to hold my world up. Don't you try to hold my world. Thanks to the Wood Brothers, Earl Scruggs, and Dar Williams. We'll be back with the Achievement Award and lots more music after a short break. Your visit to E-Town is made possible in part by the Scientific and Cultural Facilities District, or SCFD, one of the largest cultural funding mechanisms in the United States, supporting nearly 300 organizations in the greater Denver area. You're listening to E-Town.
Welcome back. I'm Nick Forster. You're listening to some of the highlights from the E-Town Archives. Up next, one of our favorite Achievement Awards, author Dave Eggers. Here's Helen to tell you more. Thanks, Nick. You know, a lot of the performers who come to E-Town are people who care about issues, like the state of the environment or the plight of those less fortunate than they. Amy Mann is one of these conscious and caring artists. In fact, she and her manager, Michael Hausman, are actually nominating our award winner this week. His name is Dave Eggers. He's a best-selling author whose book, A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius, was nominated for a Pulitzer. Now, with this sort of success, you'd think Dave might have done the typical thing of retiring in comfort. However, he's pretty much done the opposite. His passion is writing, and he decided to take his profits from his bestseller and set up a tutoring center in a poor section of San Francisco with the aim of helping inner-city kids overcome learning challenges and hone their basic writing skills with wonderful results. Now, Dave's waiting on the phone to tell us more about the center, and about the pirate shop that supports it. And I'm not kidding about that. So, Nick, take it away. Hi, Dave. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. First of all, congratulations on your success as a writer. It's pretty hard to achieve at any age, and yours came early, it seems like. Yeah, pretty early, I guess. Did you have a teacher as you were growing up, um, somebody who really helped you kind of develop your writing skills? You know, I had a sort of an uninterrupted string of uh, extraordinary English teachers. I actually didn't have any teachers that weren't extraordinary. I know that sounds hard to believe, but yeah. I can name every one of them, and I'm sort of in touch with every one of them still. Did that sort of inspire you to become interested in educating other kids? Or I, I guess so. Mm-hmm. You had this vision of bringing this community of writers and editors and so on together with, you know, basically meeting a need, filling a gap in the local school system. How do you start putting that into practice? We rented a space in the Mission District of San Francisco that I knew had a lot of public schools nearby, and we just opened up. We had a bunch of tables and chairs, and I got some used computers at a dot-com auction. Mm -hmm. That was it. We put a sandwich board on the sidewalk saying free tutoring every day after school and just hope that the neighborhood kids that, you know, hundreds of whom walk by every afternoon would come in Mm -hmm. for extra help. And, um, you know, it wasn't long before we were full every day, and then we uh, expanded from there and started working in the schools and in the evenings and during the day and everything. So, Wow. Why do you think this is so important, helping kids get familiar with and get comfortable with writing? I think it's the basis of everything. Uh, There are many, many studies about how competent writing skills translate to future success, future earnings within college, outside of college. Um, On the creative level, a lot of these students are living in worlds that are sort of out of their control. They have some troubling domestic situations. Odds are stacked against them in some ways. But if they can write, and all these kids want to, and many of them are exceptionally good at writing, that's an area where they can control, where they can sort of rewrite their own history. And then that's a door to a million different things. And um, not only careers, but also just sort of a sense of self-empowerment and esteem. Yeah, and just being heard. What's the whole story about the pirate store, anyway? What's that all about? The building that we rented, it would just happen to be in the exact right place, in the middle of the mission. And um, so we knew we wanted this place. The only problem was um, it was zoned for retail. And the landlord was okay with our goals, but he said that we really had to sell something. And I don't know, somebody threw out the idea of a pirate store as a joke. And of course, it made me laugh and made everyone else laugh. And so 
uh, that's enough to go on in, in our world. And so we thought, okay, we'll sell pirate supplies. And it actually became a bridge where instead of sort of a nonprofit being on the 32nd floor of a building downtown, it's like on the street level, we have a store front where thousands of people come every week to buy their eye patches and peg legs and, uh, and <laughs> replacement eyeballs and things like that. But at the same time, they come in, they learn more about the center. You know, you can see the students working right beyond the store. You know that if you buy a plank or something, it's going to go to the tutoring center right behind the store. And so it's a good chunk of our students and tutors and donors and everything come in just randomly off the street wanting to know what the uh, what's going on is going on there. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty clever. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the kids. So what kind of kids are showing up? How old are they and where do they come from? Everywhere from 6 to 18, but the after-school students are more like 6 to 12. And they come in for uh, just regular homework help in the afternoons, right after school, and then work one-on-one with our tutors. And it's a largely Latino neighborhood and the mission of, uh, in San Francisco with a pretty high percentage of immigrant families. Mm-hmm. A lot of kids have just moved here from Mexico, Latin America, and uh, they need to get up to speed with their English, and so we do an intensive three-week camp with them. They can't necessarily get the individualized attention at home with their writing and English-based homework because their parents' English is not their first or second language in many cases, and so their parents can't give them the help that they want to, and so we step in and help. We also do publishing projects, and Students that are working on their own novels come in. Um, you know, so there's a wide range of sort of where they're coming from and what mm-hmm. they need. And so we're saying, come in for whatever you need. We try to make it sort of stigma-less and, and uh, sort of a spirit of uh, this is a publishing center at whatever level you're at. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, Dave, can you give us an example of any individual kid for whom this program has been really effective and successful? Yeah, you know, there's a guy, he started coming shortly after we opened. He's been there almost every day since then. He had special needs and came in every day because 826 turned into a safe haven. We both helped with his writing, and that improved dramatically. But since then, he's written his own novels. We've published his collections of short stories. He's looked after the younger kids. He's found sort of self-esteem and empowerment, and he's completely transformed. You know, he's now at City College in the city, and uh, there's a million students like that for whom these centers are a place where they're welcomed and valued maybe more than in some other context. Right. Well, that must make you feel great, just seeing that kind of an impact on these young people. How is all this stuff working? Are you paying for everything, or how's it working? Uh, early on, you know, the, I was able to fund the first couple centers. Now we count on donations, fundraisers, benefit concerts. And these stores, the Pirate Supply Store and the Brooklyn Superhero Supply Store, they actually bring in a fair amount of funding for the centers. You know, we're able to pay the rent with that kind of money. And uh, But all of the organizations are hand-to-mouth. Mm-hmm. And how many centers are there? Uh, there's six now. Six, and they're in San Francisco. You mentioned Brooklyn. Yeah, Chicago, Seattle, Ann Arbor, and L.A. Wow. And you have, I imagine, a pretty impressive group of volunteers and tutors. They're incredible. Up here, we've got 1,100 in San Francisco. and 1,100 volunteers? 1,100, yeah. Wow. Dave, how long have you been doing this? The one in San Francisco opened in April of 2002. The others have opened various years since then. Yeah. Do you have any way of knowing how many kids have come through, not just Um, the San Francisco one, but all of them combined? I would guess somewhere 
in the forty or 50,000 range uh, at this point. Wow. And so, Dave, if people want to get involved or they want to find out more about or where the centers are, is there a website they can go to get more information? Yeah, um, A26Valencia.com or .org will take you to all the different centers. A26Valencia is both the name of the organization and the address of the first center. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. A26Valencia.com or .org? Yeah. Well, Dave, congratulations once again. The winner of this week's Achievement Award, Mr. Dave Eggers, founder and driving force behind 826 Valencia. Thanks so much. Congratulations, Dave. We're going to send you a framed Achievement Award certificate you can share with your volunteers. And I'm going to come and see you one day and check out the Pirate Store and the whole thing. Absolutely. We look forward to it. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye, Dave. Thank you, Dave Eggers, award winner. Back in 2006, he was already celebrated author. His book, A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius, was a big hit, won all kinds of prizes, and he has consistently been writing since then. He was recently inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Up next, we're going to have a conversation with Atlanta-based Sean Mullins and a song from him. But before that, a song from my band. We were on the same show as Earl Scruggs, recorded at Chautauqua Auditorium in Boulder back in 2006. Here's Hot Rise. Live on stage, Eddie Town. Life's too short for me to worry over you You are gone, you are missing other lips you are kissing Life's too short for me to worry over you And I'm leaving, and I'm grieving And I'm grieving, cause I'm blue And today and gone tomorrow, life's too short to borrow sorrow Life's too short for me to worry over you
this tie we must sever I don't have another heart so good and true It was made for you using Not for all this abusing Life's too short for me to worry over you And I'm leaving And I'm grieving And I'm grieving Cause I'm blue And today and gone tomorrow Life's too short Life's too short for me to worry over you Life's too short for me to worry over you That's Sugar Hill recording artist Hot Rise Pete Wernick on banjo Tim O'Brien on mandolin Nick Forster on bass And Brian Sutton on guitar Mr. Sean Mullins. Did I make that up about your grandpa being a musician? And No, he played pro his whole life, but he always had a day gig. He always told me, you're going to have to get a day job. Yeah. So I've had close calls to where I almost had to have one, but so far, so, far, so good, Pap. Yeah. And, uh, and your mom was musical and your siblings, there was a bunch of music in your house. Yeah, totally. My brother and sister both played guitar and piano and sang, and my mom can kind of play anything she picks up. Really? She used to play Ode to Billy Joe on the, on the uh, ukulele when she was pregnant with me. That's true. That's a pretty depressing song for a pregnant woman to sing, isn't it? On the ukulele. On the ukulele, yeah. That's even weirder. That cheers it up maybe a little, yeah. <laughs> Tell me about uh, joining the Army. What was that about? Well, I had actually dropped out of high school. Uh, I was just having a lot of problems, and I never was a very good student. And my dad was in the 82nd Airborne, and so I, I think part of me wanted to prove something to him and my brother, who's been a career Navy SEAL now for like 18 years. And I think that there's a part of that as a younger man that I felt like I was supposed to do in my family, jump out of airplanes and stuff like that. But And I had a ball doing it. But yeah. they also helped me pay for college, you know, and... Uh, that was really kind of the motivation. Coming back into a world of being a musician and traveling around, does he give you more uh, self-discipline? And like, do you get up earlier? And do you, you know, I mean, do you work I differently do. because you've been in the army? Yeah, I do. I get up at the crack of dawn usually, and I eat really fast. <laughs> and I've never, I've never broken either one of those habits. And and the eating fast thing came from jump school. You'd have to eat like in five minutes. You know, you're just cramming stuff in your mouth and trying to digest that is always fun because right afterwards you would go do pull-ups outside or chin-ups or whatever. So, uh, you know, I kind of got a kick out of all that. I didn't ever really let it get me down and it was good. It doesn't sound like good training, but it was good training. Hey, I, I will say that I'm a fan of some kind of civic service. I don't know what it is and whether it's military or not. I think there is that time in a young person's life where um, working hard and giving back is a good thing to do. Absolutely. And, and the context, you know, we don't have a ton of choices, but you chose one and uh, managed to give, which I think is a good thing. Oh, man, oh, thanks, man. There's a lot of people that have given so much more. I was, for the most part, a reservist. I did a, a little bit of activity time, but a lot of friends, they're still active and still, you know, doing what they believe is right. Yeah. So we know about your huge success. You had the song that was right on the border of being too popular. Oh, believe me. You know? I had this guy come up the other day, and he was like, man, that song Lullaby, the first thousand times I heard that, I really liked it. 
<laughs> it was like, I know, man, believe me, it's my tune. How do you think I feel? You yeah. know? <laughs> I can't stop them from playing it, you know? Right. But, uh, but that certainly uh, is an interesting experience that not everybody gets to have. Absolutely, to just walk into yeah. the grocery store and hear your music and walk into the gas station, there it is again. I'm yeah. I get totally embarrassed when that happens. Yeah. I get so embarrassed. Just that chorus of that song, yeah, everything, yeah. over and over and over. I remember Conan O'Brien did a thing on that. He actually came out on stage doing it like he was going crazy. He was like, everything. And I was like, that's when I knew. I was like, you know what? This is really getting out of control. We need to, I need to go make another record now, so. Well, you have made another record, yeah. and uh, I'm happy you stopped by. Glad to hear these new tunes. Thank you got you. another one for us? Thanks for having me back. It's yeah, welcome back, if you would, from Atlanta, Georgia, Mr. Sean Mullins. Well, I, I actually started writing this tune. Uh, I, I wrote the whole song, actually, for this fellow in Jackson, Mississippi, who plays at the sports bar, and he plays an acoustic guitar, and he has to do about 95% cover songs. And uh, he can sneak in his own every now and again, but they're usually watching the Braves game or whatever, you know, and not really paying attention. It made me think how fortunate I am and folks like me to get to do this and do your own songs for a living. It's pretty amazing. And uh, I wrote this one for him. Oh, and he's also in love with the woman behind the bar of this place, but she's married to the club owner. <laughs> so... It's 3 a.m. and the snakes have moved in. I'm playing the four drunks and me. But the beer is cold and the memories old. And the lights are so bright I can't see. And lonesome, I know you too well. You ring in my ears just like a bell. And you're hollow like a dark, empty well. And lonesome, I know you. Sometimes it spins just like a wheel Whenever I see her around Oh, but she, she doesn't know And I'll never show There's too many eyes in this town And oh I know you too well You ring in my ears Just like a bell And you're hollow 
Like a dark empty well And lonesome I know you And it's 3 a.m. And the snakes have moved That's Sean Mullins, along with the E-Tones. I think I was playing mandolin on that song. We will be back with more after a short break. This portion of E-Town is made possible by the Bohemian Foundation, building stronger communities through the Bohemian qualities of creativity and imagination. On the web at bohemianfoundation.org. You're listening to E-Town. Like to say hello to our listeners who are hearing E-Town on stations like WIUM in Macomb, Illinois, on WHFC in Bel Air and Baltimore, Maryland, and on KPOV in Bend, Oregon. As always, if you'd like some more information about anything we're up to here at E-Town, all kinds of stuff is available online at etown.org. You can also see lots of videos on E-Town's YouTube channel and on our website directly. Please welcome to E-Town for his first visit, Mr. Josh Ritter. Hello. All right, Josh. So Moscow, Idaho, college town, what kind of place is that? Yeah, it's a small little town in the north of Idaho. If you come through Idaho, it's that part that you pass through at night in the dark. And, and you can say you pass through it, but it's, um, it's actually night all the time there. Hence the writing, because you're inside and it's dark and snowed in most yeah, of the year. In, yeah. Um, well, let me let me jump uh, fast forward a little bit uh, to this rumor about a song that kind of derailed you. That was, uh, as I understand it, a duet between Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash that just kind of spoke to you in a way that surprised you. Yeah, I don't know how many people grow up in a place where there isn't a lot of a lot of radio or a lot of just. Friends, but I grew up way out of town, and I always wanted to be a skateboarder. And um, and we lived on a gravel road. <laughs> and that's that's kind of how music was as well, you know. Like that's, that's sad. And my parents had uh, uh, some records, and I dusted off the turntable one day when I got done just throwing rocks. <laughs> and um, and there was this there was this great. <laughs> There was this, I put on this Dylan record, this smiling guy on the cover of this record, a Nashville Skyline, and the first track was a track with Johnny Cash, and uh, it was playing without caring, you know, and playing, not looking at perfection, but looking at passion. Yeah, yeah. 
This is such an easy crowd, isn't it? These, this is just... Um, you did then kind of dive into folk music in a different way, connected to your major in college about American history, and, and uh, maybe you can help us understand how learning about folk music informs your writing or your approach to music now. To me, there's so much about music today that's so focused on, like, selling records, on image and airbrushing, and there's so much involved, and everything's digital, and the world is moving a million miles an hour, and I don't think music should be like that, you know? people actually getting together and playing music is one of the only watering holes in culture that ex has existed since the very beginning, you know, so. <laughs> the, the trip to Ireland was kind of a big deal. And Ireland, of course, has that wonderful tradition of telling stories and singing songs around the dinner table and families uh, really yeah. valuing that. Does that make them better listeners for singer-songwriters? Do they pay attention to the words more than some other places? Yeah, there is something about everybody kind of cramming in close together. The venues, they pack them in there, and you're kind of the host for the night. It's a beautiful thing. There's a little more drinking, though. <laughs> Over there. That depends. Yeah. <laughs> you been in Kentucky? <laughs> <laughs> Um, you have a new CD. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's called The Animal Years, and I'm, I'm really, really proud of it. It's a record about trying to figure out a way to write about America and talk about America and talk about how much you can love a country but still hold it to account. It's, it's harder to do sometimes, but, but it's worth it if you can. It's safe to say you were a, a more nuanced writer. You know, these are, it's a subtler message in your songs in general. I think anybody can make a song into a blunt object, you know. This, this record is so much about taking back a love of country and establishing your love of country without having to give in to people who say we have to go to war. So being outspoken and being true to your values in this country can also be uh, a very real form of patriotism. Is that what you're saying? I think that people's deepest held beliefs are the ones that they can rarely explain. And, and I think that when you, you turn on the news and everybody has the conviction that they seem to have on the news <laughs> or in front of a microphone, like that's not something that I trust. You know, I think that it's the human condition to be confused most of the time. And some of our best work comes out of that. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Josh, we're gonna uh, we're gonna have to sit down and uh, have a pint sometime and figure this out. But That'd be great. meanwhile, there's this show going on, and <laughs> we should probably get back to that. So, <laughs> so um, let's get back to music. Thanks for stopping right. by. Welcome back, if you Thank would, you, Mr. Josh Ritter. <laughs> Words we wrote. I 
Just the rules of the game and the rules are the first to go Well now talking to God is Laurel begging Hardy for a gun I got a girl in the war, man I wonder what it is we done Paul said to Peter, you gotta rock yourself a little harder Pretend the dove from above is a dragon and your feet are on fire But I got a girl in the war, Paul, the only thing I know to do Is turn up the music and pray that she makes it through Cause the keys to the kingdom got locked inside the kingdom And the angels fly around in there But we can't see them When I got a girl in the war, Paul, I know that they can hear me yell If they can't find a way to help her, they can go to hell They can't find a way to help or they can go to hell Gotta rock yourself a little harder Pretend the dove from above is a dragon And your feet are on fire But I got a girl in the war Paul, her eyes are like champagne They sparkle bubble over And in the morning all you got is Sparkle bubble over and in the morning all you got is rain The sparkle bubble over and in the morning all you got is rain Hey Thank you very much. Thanks for having me here. Thank you, Josh Ritter. We have time for one more song. I want to thank all of our guests this week. And I also want to thank our production team here at E-Town. That's Todd Ayers, Zach Littlefield, and a special thanks to Helen Forster. 
We're going to leave you with a song from James Hunter. James Hunter was born in Colchester in England. He spent time busking. He worked on the railways. He sang backup for Van Morrison. But he hit upon this cool sound of kind of mid-60s R&B and soul, and he's been doing it ever since. This is a song from his only visit to E-Town, which was back in 2006. I'm Nick Forster. Hope you can be with us next week right here in E-Town. Thank you very much. How are you?
This is a production of E-Town. Okay, that's the way it is. 2006, some more highlights. Great music from a bunch of people. A great achievement award. We hope you guys are doing okay. I'm Nick Forster. Thanks for listening.